Thanks for listening to Dark Histories. Before we start, I just want to take a second to thank all the people who support the show and help make it sustainable, both on Patreon and by signing up to Audible via the Dark Histories affiliate link. You can find links to both of those in the show notes if you're interested, or you can help out just by sharing the show with people who you think might be interested, on social media or with all the good people you might know. Alright, let's get on with the episode. Cheers. As the curtain fell on the Great War, Britain slowly returned to a sense of peacetime normality. The land was a vastly different place than before the war had started, however. Social unrest, high unemployment, drastic social change and, of course, the shocking number of casualties in the trenches of France had altered the landscape forever. It was the summer of 1919, in a leafy rural region of Leicestershire, that we turn our focus towards today and a woman named Bella Wright who was found lying dead by the roadside one quiet Saturday evening. At first, police assumed her death to have been an accident, but things escalated quickly when a gunshot wound was later discovered, and the last man seen with Bella alive appeared to have disappeared completely. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome, Season 3, Episode 1. I'm Ben, this is Dark Histories, and it's fantastic to be back. I've had a really nice time off organising, you know, well, Christmas first and foremost, I guess, and New Year. Happy New Year, everyone. I hope you're all adhering to your New Year's resolutions about as well as me, which is to say, yeah, not well at all. But yeah, I've had a decent holiday. I've managed to organise a few things for the show, which are really exciting. And yeah, it's been great, but it's been really great to be back. Uh, I was climbing the walls after a while, to be honest. It, it was nice. I got to read a few books that weren't Dark Histories related, which was nice. But otherwise, yeah, I've, I was basically climbing the walls. Couldn't wait to be back. So here we are, season three, episode one. I want to take a quick moment before we start just to thank our new patrons who joined over the Christmas break. Uh should really apologise to them, actually. I've been remarkably quiet. I sort of removed myself from any podcasting for about three weeks. Uh, aside from Discord, I've been... And even in Discord, I've been quite quiet. Um, but yeah, thank you very much to Samara, Monica, Christina, Andrea, Alison, Paisley, Jay, Susan, and a name which I'm absolutely sure I'm going to get wrong. But I think it might be pronounced Svanette. So if when if I've done that pronunciation wrong, please do tell me and I'll correct it later. But thank you very much for joining. Um, and it's fantastic to have you all. And yeah, I really appreciate it, especially joining over Christmas. I, I expected no one to sign up to Patreon because obviously, you know, money's tight. But thank you very much. I really appreciate that. And also just want to say thank you to Hallie, who uh, purchased the book for this episode from the dark histories amazon wishlist and got it sent to me so yeah thank you very much that's that's really very kind of you so here we go let's get into it shall we first episode season three green bicycle mystery it's a good one it's quite a long one but it's a good one as the curtain fell on the nightmare of the first world war men returned home across the uk to a country that had changed rapidly in their absence Many suffered from the stained horrors of trench warfare 
with high rates of PTSD at the time dubbed shell shock and was seen as a weakness by many and dismissed rather ashamedly as cowardice or a sign of a lack of character by some. For men promised a triumphant hero's homecoming coupled with the demobilisation scheme that worked to stagger the release of servicemen from the military over an extended period, this was a tough pill to swallow. When they did make it home, they found a country that functioned in ways they weren't previously accustomed to. If the long-running suffragette movement had made dents in the rampant gender inequality of the time, the upheaval caused by the First World War had kicked the doors down. Social change had been swift. Women who were once relegated to short piecemeal factory work or service positions prior to the war had found a new freedom as they stepped up and took positions traditionally worked by the men, many of which were dangerous and critical to the war effort. Alongside this, Britain's global trade had taken a hit during the war as foreign industries stepped in to replace the contracts that Britain was now unable to fulfil, whilst automation, so critical during the war, further shrunk the demand for new employment. With the war's hunger for manpower, its huge death toll and its demand on the workforce at home, the makeup of the workplace had changed dramatically and unemployment rates among returning soldiers was high. Whilst demobilisation in the UK is seen as largely successful in the long term, it took off to a rocky start and the outcome led to many men scattering themselves throughout the country, either looking for new work or a new life and as such, Small towns and villages whose inhabitants would have previously known everyone in the village hall were now met with faces they didn't recognise. Amongst this evolving landscape, social tensions ran high. In St Mary's Mills, Leicester, England, the Bates's Rubber Works was one of the British factories who had employed thousands of women during the war years. Now in 1919, they were largely exempt from the shrinking industry. Concerned with the manufacture of tyres for bicycles and cars, of which ownership of both was only escalating, their own output was perfectly healthy. Whilst motor cars were still largely owned by only the richest in society, bicycles were a method of transport and a personal freedom ubiquitous within the working population. The sight of Bella Wright cycling to work the evening shift in the Bates Rubber Works daily for the previous five months was not anything out of the ordinary. Within this normality, however, the scene is set for an event that would be anything but. Annie Bella Wright was a 21-year-old factory worker living in Stoughton, a small rural village in Leicestershire, England. She was born nearby in Melton Mowbray in 1897 to parents Keenus Wright, a farm labourer, and mother Mary Ann. She was the eldest of their seven children, with four brothers and two sisters. At seven years old, Bella attended school in the village of Summerby, five miles south of Malton Mowbray. She'd started her education at a slightly older age as she'd been kept at home to help her mother with general housework and chores. She graduated in 1910 aged 13 years old and took the position of a parlour maid in the care of a wealthy local family. She was 16 when the bells of war broke out across Britain in 1914 opened up a new track for working-age women to move out of the service positions that they are often herded into. By 1917, over a million women had joined the factory workforce, and now, at the age of 19, Bella herself decided it was time for a change too. After seven years in the service industry, she took a job as a shoe machinist in a shoe, glove and hosiery factory. Before the war, 
She had been casually seeing a young man named Archie Ward, and many, including some members of her own family, assumed there was some kind of arrangement, although unofficial, that the pair were engaged to be married after the war was over, though Bella and Archie themselves spoke little of it. And though they exchanged communications whilst he worked as a stoker on the Navy ship HMS Diadem, it appears that they were perhaps little more than childhood friends, in the eyes of Bella at least. During the early months of 1919, Bella took a new job, this time working the evening shift from 2pm till 10pm as a factory hand in a tyre manufacturing plant named Bates's Rubber Works in St Mary's Mill. The factory was three miles from her family cottage, situated next to the village school in Stoughton, and Bella cycled to and from work through the rural tree and hedge-lined lanes that cut through the fields daily. Saturday the 5th of July was Bella's day off, and she woke late and spent the late morning and early afternoon writing letters to her friends in the kitchen of her home. That evening she planned to visit her uncle's home to see her cousin, his wife and their new baby who was staying with the family in the nearby village of Golby. At 6pm, she wheeled her bicycle out into the street, hopped on and began her ride to Evington Post Office to post her letters on the way to her uncle's. Through sheer good fortune, she met with Mrs Powers, who worked at the Evington Post Office, riding in the opposite direction. The two ladies stopped to talk and Mrs Powers offered to take Bella's letters to the post office herself. Bella thankfully obliged and handed over her post along with the money needed to cover postage, and the two parted. Noticing the sky turning dark grey, Bella decided perhaps it may be a wiser decision to return home for a raincoat rather than to ride straight on to Gorby, and so after doubling back to her house and grabbing a coat, she set back out to visit her family and arrived in the village five miles from Stoughton at 7.25pm. Her uncle was a gruff looking man named George Measures. Aside from his greying, bushy beard, his other defining characteristic was a solid wood prosthetic that buckled up around his thigh to replace his right leg that he had lost from the knee down. Bella's cousin Margaret was staying with the family in Gorby with her husband James Evans and their two children, 18-month-old Marjorie and newborn son James. Whilst there, George took delivery of groceries and whilst out by the front door, he noticed a young man perched on a green cycle wearing a grey flat cap with a raincoat tossed over his handlebars. Not recognising him, he asked the grocers if they knew who he was and they explained that they had seen him riding into Gorby earlier that evening with Bella and assumed that the two were together. Somewhat unamused that his niece appeared to be keeping company with young men whilst her fiancé was in the Navy, he asked Bella about the man upon his return to the lounge. Bella assured her uncle that she didn't know him at all, that she had met him in cycling on the road to Gorby, and after he had asked directions to a village she didn't know, the pair had exchanged polite conversation whilst riding together for a time. He had told her he was from Great Glen, a town three and a half miles southwest of Gorby. Not feeling overly assured, he begrudgingly accepted the story. The man continued to hang around in the street outside, and though Bella had planned to leave slightly earlier, when told that he was still outside, she replied that she'd stay a little longer. It was around 8.30pm when Jim went out of the front of the house in an exercise to relax his father-in-law and he saw no sight of the man who had apparently got bored of hanging around waiting for Bella, and surely must have left to return home before the night set in. 
She asked Jim to take a look at her bike first, however, as she had had some trouble on the ride over with her rear wheel. As the two were outside looking over the bike, Bella's other cousin, Agnes, arrived. Now, the Evans family stood at the front door to see Bella off, and as Jim finished tightening her rear wheel with a spanner and she began to push the bicycle into the street, the stranger on the green bike freewheeled down the hill from the church towards Bella, greeting her. You've been a long time. I thought you'd gone the other way. The man was around five foot six inches tall, with short brown hair flecked with grey. He was dressed in a shabby grey suit, shirt, tie, black boots, and carried his raincoat slung over his shoulder. He spoke in a high-pitched, squeaky voice with a slight cockney accent. Perhaps through concern that his father-in-law might make a scene, or perhaps just to satisfy his own curiosities, Jim stepped out into the street to speak with him. He asked the man about his bike. A BSA. Jim had had a BSA too, he said, though he'd never seen one with such an unusual colour. The bike was a special order, he told Jim. It had been painted pea green. As the two spoke, Agnes took Bella aside and asked her earnestly if she was quite sure she didn't know the man. They seemed to speak with a degree of familiarity, she felt, but Bella assured her that she was telling the truth and had only known him by riding with him along the road for a short time to Gulby. At 8.45pm, Bella finally waved goodbye to her family and began pushing her bike up the street back towards the church. As she walked away from the house, the stranger joined her in pushing his bike back up the hill in the same direction. They appeared to chat as they both mounted their bicycles and rode out of sight and out of the village. Around 9.20pm, 35 minutes after Bella was last seen cycling away from her uncle's house, Joseph Cowell, a local farmer, was returning home to nearby Stretton Prava and herding a group of cattle along the Via Divana Road, an old Roman stretch that cut through the breadth of England connecting Colchester in the southeast to Chester in the northwest. The Leicester section connected the town to nearby markets throughout Leicestershire and was lined by fields, trees and hedgerows for miles. As Joseph approached the turn-off to Little Stretton, 100 yards before the fork in the road, he noticed what he thought was a horse rug that had fallen from a goods cart. As he drew closer, however, he saw a bicycle laying on its side, and there off to one side on the roadway, the rider lying face down beside it in a pool of blood. Stopping the cows in their tracks, he ran to the young girl and picked her up, intending to take her across the field to his home and find first aid for the injured rider. As he lifted her from the ground, her head fell backwards, lifeless and limp. Joseph recognised there was little he could do for the young lady. He placed their body on the grass bank by the side of the road, picked the bike up to remove it from blocking any traffic and lent it on a nearby tree, installed his cows into the adjoining field and paced home through the long grass as quickly as he could to collect his horse and cart before setting out to inform the police of the grim discovery. At 10.30pm, 31-year-old police constable Alfred Hall arrived on the scene. PC Hall worked at the station in nearby Great Glen. He'd been a policeman for nine years and he'd only recently returned to his position after leaving to join the English forces, where he'd spent his time as a soldier in France. Upon his return, he'd slipped seamlessly back into his old job as a bobby, a situation that 21 of his colleagues within the Leicestershire district were not so lucky to experience as they had never returned home at all. 
When Hall approached the scene, he met with two local men, Mr. Naylor and Mr. Deacon, who Joseph Cowell had alerted and asked to stand guard until the police arrived. Now he met with his three men riding his horse and cart, and together they lifted the body of Bella into the back of the cart where Hall inspected her as best he could. Upon her body, he found very little clues as to what might have happened. She was wearing a hat, and her clothing didn't appear dishevelled or torn. She had a box of matches, a handkerchief and a purse in the pockets, but little else could be ascertained. As the men carried on with their inspection, headlights lit the roadway and a car pulled up, driven by Dr Edward Williams. He too gave Bella's body a cursory inspection, and taking note of the blood around her nose and mouth, suggested that she had had either a seizure or hemorrhage and fallen from her bike, though the cause of death could not be ascertained. Realising that in such poor lighting little else could be found in their current position, Joseph Cowell rode the horse and cart to a disused chapel in the village of Stratton, where they placed the body and the bicycle. As the candlelight flickered in the dim building, Dr Williams further inspected Bella's face, noticing that she had bruising around her left cheek there was a large amount of blood that concealed the true extent of the damage. After Joseph Cowell ran both P.C. Hall and Dr. Williams through his discovery, the group gave up for the evening, locking up the chapel as they left. Hall asked Williams if he could report the incident as a hemorrhage, and as the doctor confirmed his position, the men parted. As P.C. Hall rode home, however, he found doubt creeping into his mind. He doubted the young girl had fallen from a hemorrhage, but he had found no evidence of a crash or any violence on the roadway. Things didn't set well with him that night, and as he arrived home and stepped down from his bike, he decided that he'd return to the scene in the morning with the light of day on his side. The next day, Sunday the 6th of July, PC Hall woke up bright and early. It was 6am and the weather was cool for the time of year. He hopped on his bike and rode out to the Via Divana Road once again to scour the scene in the light of day. He was sure he was missing something important, but what it was, he only hoped he could pin down with a thorough investigation of the scene. At the same time, Bella Wright's mother, Mary Ann, woke up to find that her daughter had not returned home from her ride the night before, and she made her way to the post office in Evington to report her missing. The police were, as yet to identify Bella as the girl lying lifeless in the village chapel. When P.C. Hall arrived at the scene, he paced backwards and forwards, up and down the road, eyes peeled for any clue that might help him to piece together what may have led to Bella falling from her bike. The road had a soft incline, though it did seem a push to consider that as any sort of hazard. The herd of cows that Joseph had been moving had done a fair job of trampling over the scene, though at the time, this hadn't caused any alarm to Hall or given him any cause for any concern. The only new piece of intrigue he spotted was a track of bloody bird prints that led from the accident spot in the road to a loosely tied wooden gate, but otherwise there was little else to be found. He returned home for lunch at 3pm, checking in with the county constabulary in Leicester to confirm that he'd been back to the scene and that no new evidence had been found. Still unsatisfied, however, he returned once again at 6pm Once again, he paced the trackway, head down, scouring the rough ground for anything. His persistence paid off, and a mere six yards from the bloodstain where Bella's body had been found, he discovered a spent bullet half-wedged into a cow's hoof mark in the road. 
He dug it out with his fingers and inspected it, and using his experience in the armed forces, felt pretty sure that it was a .45 bullet, a fairly large calibre round that could have been shot by a pistol or revolver. In particular, that of a Webley revolver, a common issue in the armed forces during the First World War. Following the war, there had been an influx of firearms into the country as soldiers returned home from the fighting carrying their weapons. A situation that was so common, it would have no small part to play in the enforcement of the Firearms Act of 1920 that would bring in strict requirements for obtaining a firearms licence. For now, however, an ex-serviceman possessing a revolver or rifle was not altogether uncommon, and the .455 bullets were made in the millions. Paul wasted no time in communicating the discovery to Dr. Williams before returning to the scene yet again at 7.30pm. This time he took Joseph Cowell along with him, who walked Hall through his discovery step by step. The pair found little new on the road, though they did find a track that ran from the tied wooden gate through the high grass of the field below. They followed it to a turnstile, but after, the track was lost. Within the field, a second curious discovery was made by the pair they found the remains of a dead crow, though Hall was unsure how it may have been connected. Hall's next stop was to catch up with Dr Williams and to return to the disused chapel to reinspect the body of Bella Wright. He met with him on the road between Gorby and Billsden, and after the doctor's final house call, the pair arranged to meet in the chapel in Great Glen. Upon their arrival, PC Hall began washing the blood from Bella's face. He carefully lifted off the hat, still perched on her head, and upon doing so, made a further grim discovery. Bella had not died from a fall or any sort of hemorrhage or seizure at all. On her left cheek, the pair found a bullet entry wound, and on the back of the right side of her head, behind her ear, a larger exit wound. Bella had been murdered. By Monday the 7th of July, the press had gotten hold of the story the discovery of the bullet wound was too late to affect many of the stories that they had run with. The small headline on the front page of the Leicester Daily Post read simply, Women Cyclist's Death, and included scant detail. Unidentified female found dead by farmer on highway by Stretton Prava. To all appearances, the deceased had fallen from her machine onto her face, which was bleeding profusely. According to both medical and police opinion, Deceased must have had a seizure whilst riding, but whether death was directly due to the seizure or the fall is at present uncertain. The police were long past this theory, however, and a full-blown murder investigation was underway. Superintendent Herbert Taylor visited the scene, though he found little else new that PC Hall had not already reported. He did go one step further with the strange dead crow and matched the bird's feet with the prints on the top of the wooden gate. The bird was sent for analysis, but otherwise, the whole affair was still as mysterious as it had been on the night that they had found the body, if not more so with the introduction of the bullet wound. One of the first public documents that mentioned the shooting was a police handbill, printed on the 7th, that was handed out amongst local residents appealing for information. It contained by far the most detailed information about the case, and included a description of the man seen by James Evans, Bella's cousin, who spoke with him on Saturday night before the pair left. At 9.20pm, fifth instant, the body of a woman, since identified as Annie Bella Wright, was found lying on the Burton Overy Road, Stretton Prava. 
with a bullet wound through her head and her bicycle lying close by. Shortly before the finding of the body, the deceased left an adjacent village in the company of a man matching the following description. Aged 35 to 40 years, height 5 foot 7 to 5 foot 9, apparently usually clean shaven but had not shaved for a few days, hair turning grey, broad full face, broad build, so to have a squeaking voice and to speak in a low tone. Dressed in light rainproof coat with green plaid lining, grey mixture jacket suit, grey cap, collar and tie, black boots and wearing cycling clips. There was also contained a long description of the man's green BSA bicycle and the request that if the man were to be met with, he should be detained and police contacted. A reward for £5 was also offered, along with a specific appeal to owners of all bicycle repair shops for any information on the ownership of the bike. The next day, Tuesday the 8th of July, the inquest began and the stories in the press changed dramatically from the previous day. The Liverpool Echo ran the headline in large block capitals, Girl Found Shot, Tragedy of a Country Lane at Leicester, Man on Bicycle, Mysterious Cyclist Who Spoke to Her. None of the press reports made any bones about who might be the prime suspect. She stated that a man, also riding a bicycle, had spoken to her and accompanied her to the farm, and the girl was not seen again alive, though a local farmer remembers seeing two cyclists pass down the lane late in the evening. It's surmised Miss Wright was shot whilst riding the bicycle. Coupled with the circulating leaflet published by the police, it was clear that the police's main suspect was the mysterious man with the green bicycle. The inquest, which was held at Joseph Cowell's cottage in Stretton Prava, was attended by Coroner Edmund Buskell, Superintendent Levi Bowley, and Chief Constable Edward Holmes. Only two witnesses were present, Marianne Wright, Bella's mother, and Joseph Cowell. The proceedings were short and included confirmation of identification from Marianne and confirmation of how the body was found by Joseph Cowell. The inquest was then promptly adjourned until Friday the 25th of July and the body of Bella released to prepare for burial. Things were moving at a steady clip and information was reasonably forthcoming in the early days of the investigation. Harry Cox, a bicycle repair shop owner, came forward to police with information, stating that he'd repaired the bicycle described in the papers only one week prior. Unfortunately, the owner had never given his name, though Cox confirmed that he certainly matched the description on the handbill. He told the police that through short conversations, he knew only that the man was from London and visiting friends in Leicester and had very recently been demobilised. The fact that the suspect was from London had both positive and negative effects on the investigation. Firstly, it made looking for the man's name somewhat similar to finding a needle in a haystack. If the man wasn't local, he could very easily have slipped away quietly. On the plus side, the London connection meant that the case now fell under the duty of the Metropolitan Police and that meant their efforts could be bolstered by everything that they had to offer. The local police contacted Scotland Yard and Detective Chief Inspector Albert Hawkins was dispatched to Leicestershire to lend his expertise to the case. Albert Hawkins would later be better known as one of the Big Four, four superintendents that would head up the Criminal Investigations Department of Scotland Yard that year. All of Bella's friends, family and colleagues were meticulously questioned, alongside her unofficial fiancé, Archie Ward, who travelled from Portsmouth to aid in the investigation. 
Archie had briefly been a suspect, but was equally as quickly ruled out following his questioning. One note concerning Archie was that at the inquest, Bella's mother laid it out straight to the coroner that Bella and Archie were not engaged to be married, but the pair were stepping out together, perhaps laying to rest a long-running rumour in the village at the same time. On the afternoon of Friday the 11th of July, Bella's funeral was held at St Mary's and All Saints Church in Stoughton. As was the norm for the times, people crowded the streets to attend, apparently numbering in the hundreds. The hymn Brief Life is Here Our Portion was sung, and what was likely a good percentage of the population of the local villages streamed past the coffin. Naturally, the police followed suit, but no sign of the man on the green bicycle was reported. It was looking more and more likely as the days ticked by, with no one knowing who he was, where he'd come from, or where he was staying, that he'd simply vanished. As the week passed, no new leads were forthcoming, and the investigation into the Bella Wright case began grinding to a slow halt. Still no weapon had been found, despite hedgerows being trampled for miles, whilst police searched the fields and roadsides for a firearm. On the 17th of July, the local paper published a comment from DCI Hawkins appealing for the man with the green bike to come forward to police and to aid in the investigation. Along with this, a second handbill was published. This time the reward was up to £20, and the tone of the leaflet, like the press coverage, had changed drastically. It now bore the headline, Murder at Stretton Prava. Whilst it may have reflected the public opinion of what had happened on the night of Bella's death, the inquiry was yet to formally state it as a case of murder. Once again, the leaflet focused on the man with the green bicycle, and this time included the repair information. On the 25th of July, the second day of the inquiry took place, upgraded this time to the village hall of Great Glen. Joseph Cowell was recalled alongside Dr Edward Williams and Dr Edgar Phillips. Primarily, the questioning was in regards to the medical evidence, and after clearing up that the initial examinations undertaken by the doctor was done in poor lighting and simply cursory, they moved on to the bullet wound. Dr Evans explained how he had cleaned and dissected the wound, finding pieces of gravel from the road inside, along with some small shards of metal. This, he believed, showed signs that the gunshot could not have been fired from more than four or five feet away. No bruising or marks or any evidence of struggle or violation had been found, and the scratches that he had discovered on the face and hands were compatible, in his opinion, of the theory that Bella had been shot whilst riding her bicycle, or whilst standing. The inquest was then adjourned for a further two weeks to allow for more evidence to come forth, though it appeared more and more likely that that was wishful thinking on the part of the coroner. In the two weeks that separated the second and third days of the inquest, the case of Bella Wright appeared to turn rather cold. Despite upping the reward to a significant sum and appealing to the public for information in the press on numerous occasions, nothing new materialised since the discovery that the man had had his bicycle fixed in a local repair shop. The third day of the inquest took place again in Great Glen's Village Hall on Friday the 8th of August. First to give evidence was Harry Cox, the bicycle repairman who had worked on the green cycle and spoken with the mystery owner. I had half an hour's talk with him and he said he was staying with friends in Leicester. He told me he was a demobilised officer and working for a firm in London. The firm, he said, had told him he could have another two or three weeks holiday on full pay as they were not very busy. 
From the way he spoke, I should say he was a Londoner. He spoke with a Cockney accent fairly quickly. He had a squeaky voice. Just before he left my shop, he told me he was fed up messing about the town. He was going to have a run out in the country. He rode off in the direction of Old Evington. This was followed by James and Margaret Evans, Bella's cousins, and George Measures, her uncle, all of whom she had visited on the night of her death. They spoke of meeting with the man in the street outside the house and how he had hung about and then left with Bella as the last they saw of her alive. The final witnesses on the third day of the inquest was Henry Clark, a gunsmith from Leicester, who told the coroner that the bullet found by PC Hall was indeed a .455 calibre and could have been fired from either a rifle or a revolver, though if it was a revolver, it would have certainly been a service gun. He also mentioned that if fired from a distance of five feet, he would have expected to find scorching from the black powder on the face of the victim, something which the doctors confirmed was absent from Bella's wounds. PC Hall gave a brief account of how he had found the bullet in the road, and the inquest was once again adjourned until the 25th of August though the fourth day's proceedings were swift and the only order of business was to pass out the verdict that the case was certainly willful murder against some person or persons unknown. During the days between the inquest, the police had still made no strong moves on the investigation. No new leads had come through the station's doors and things appeared to be stalling quick time. Even the press was losing interest. The final day of the inquest occupied just six lines of print in the local paper that told of the inquest verdict and wrapped up by stating simply, there is still no clue to the man with the green bicycle. As the summer sun sat over the fields of Leicestershire, the leaves of the trees fell on the roads they lined and winter frosted the grounds of the same fields to concrete hardness. The Scotland Yard Commissioner received a letter from the Office of the Director of Public Relations that summed up the mood around the case quite efficiently. I have read the papers in this case with considerable interest and am now returning them to you as I have little hope that the murderer will ever be caught. As the curtain fell on 1919 and the sun laid its first beams of light into 1920, the case of Bella was as stone cold as the air of the rural deep winter. On Monday the 23rd of February 1920, Enoch Whitehouse, a canal haulier, was gliding along the canal delivering goods to various factories. As he approached the factory at St Mary's Mills that Bella Wright had worked at until her death seven months previously, his tow rope snagged on something along the riverbed. As he pulled it up out of the water, he saw that the rope had tangled around what appeared to be a bicycle. He heaved it up to the side of the barge when he recalled a story that he'd read in the paper months ago. They were looking for a green bicycle. Looking down at the twisted metal frame wrapped around his rope, he could scarcely believe his luck. Tangled in the ropes was a pea-green bicycle, just as he recalled it to have been described, and there was a hefty reward tagged onto information if he could supply it to the police. This was a remarkable feat of chance, but stranger still was that it was right alongside the very factory where Bella had previously spent so much of her life. Enoch let the bike slide back into the murky canal depths, taking note of the position and continued the day's deliveries. The next day, however, he returned and hauled it back up, this time bringing it aboard and taking it directly to the police station at Long Eaton. There were parts missing, certainly. For one, the back wheel was entirely absent. Still, 
He was quite sure that if this was the bicycle the police were looking for, they would pay out all the same. As it turned out, the bike that Enoch Whitehouse had pulled up was exactly the one that the police had been searching for for months. They immediately called in a local BSA agent named William Saunders to inspect what was left of the machine. Unfortunately, their hopes of reigniting the investigation into the murder of Bella Wright was premature, as Saunders quickly found that the bike's serial number, usually stamped into the frame beneath the seat, had been filed off. Just as the investigators' hopes began to die, however, Saunders mentioned that if the bike was a special order, they often had multiple serial numbers. It had already been noted that the pea green colour was unusual, and so they set Saunders to work, stripping the remaining parts from the frame in search of a second serial number. They were in luck. Stamped onto the inside of the handlebar post was a second serial number, tucked up where no one would ever consider looking without any knowledge of the stamping practice, was a six digit number, 103648. The BSA offices in Redditch unearthed the files for the bike and found that it was manufactured in 1910 to fulfil an order placed on the 3rd of May, where it was dispatched to a dealer in Derby named Autumn Brothers. It was a precarious chain, but provided the Autumn Brothers kept good records of their sales, the police were inching closer to finally uncovering their mystery man. The police visited the dealership in Derby and spoke to Joseph Orton, who flicked through his store's records to find that the bicycle had been bought for £13.13, 13 paid for in cash, by a man named Ronald Light. When he bought the bike, he'd even given two addresses as contact information. They hit a snag when they found that Ronald no longer lived there either, but they at least had a paper chain to follow, and jumping from rental agreement to rental agreement, they followed the trail straight to a current address in Cheltenham, around 75 miles southwest of Leicester, where he was teaching as an assistant schoolmaster in a well-to-do private school. On Thursday the 4th of March, Superintendent Taylor from Leicester Police, alongside Sergeant Eels of Cheltenham Police, visited Dean Close School, and after a brief conversation and protestations on the part of Ronald Light, where he first stated that he'd never even owned a green BSA bicycle in the first place, and then amended the story saying that perhaps he did, though only for around a year and had sold it shortly after. He told the detectives that he'd never heard of Bella Wright, and certainly never visited Gulby. Unsatisfied with his answers to their questions, he was asked to accompany the two policemen back to Cheltenham Station. Henry Cox, the bicycle repairman, was called for to attend a line-up, and he promptly made the long journey down and stepped into the cramped interview room, containing a line-up of ten men. He fingered Light, immediately recognising him as the man who had come to his shop to collect the green bike on the day of the murder of Bella Wright. The police immediately arrested him on charge of murder. Whilst he held a Bachelor of Science degree and had been teaching in a respectable school position, it soon became apparent that the life of Ronald Light had not quite been all that he'd presented it as, and the lies that he'd been telling the police were not entirely out of character. At 34 years old, Ronald Vivian Light was born in 1885 to parents George and Catherine. His mother Catherine had been from a particularly wealthy family, and his early years were comfortable. He'd attended prep and private school, however at the age of 17 he had been expelled for inappropriate behaviour with a younger pupil. The official reason, that he'd lifted a girl's skirt over her head, seems a little like the incident may have been downplayed. 
He ended up finishing his schooling at City and Guilds in London and accepted an engineering apprenticeship with Midland Railway in Derby. In 1910, aged 25, he completed his training and became an engineer assistant. He worked there for four more years and was well liked by his colleagues, though he was eventually fired for setting a storeroom on fire and for drawing graffiti on the bathroom walls. His dismissal fell right on time for the outbreak of war and so, like so many men, he enlisted to fight. He was drafted into the position of second lieutenant of the Royal Engineers and was sent to France in 1915 where he constructed trenches to prepare for the Somme offensive. His war experience would not last for long, however, when ten weeks later he was sent home. The official reason given being that he lacked initiative as an officer, though rumours spread that he had assaulted a French postmistress. Soon after his abrupt return, his father fell from a second story window and died. Though it was never proven, it was certainly whispered about in the town that he had committed suicide. Ronald Light spent the summer of 1916 working as a farm labourer before re-enlisting as a gunner in the reserves. Perhaps never expecting to get called up, he whiled away his time. His regiment was called up, however, twice in fact, but both times they had received orders on the eve of their departure that they were to stand down and await further orders at home. The fighting was destroying so many lives in France, and the demand for manpower was so large that when the powers that be looked into the orders that kept Light's regiment on home soil and a handwriting test was undertaken on the entire corps, it came as little surprise that there had been some monkey business keeping them from leaving. As it turned out, Ronald Light had himself sent the orders to the regiment leader that cancelled their call-up on both occasions. Light was sentenced to one year imprisonment, but with the demand on men as it was, he was released after only four months and was sent on his way back across the channel in 1917. This time, he served ten months as a gunner. Eventually, he was sent home with deafness and ringing in his ears. He spent three months in a military hospital, at which point the war was ended. In February 1919, he was officially demobilised, and he returned to Leicester to live with his mother, where he stayed until taking the position as assistant schoolmaster in Cheltenham on the 20th of January 1920. He'd only been at the school for three months before the police came knocking, looking for the man who owned the green bicycle. The next day, Ronald Light was transported back to Leicester Station, where he would answer extensive questioning and await his trial whilst the police attempted to build a case against him. Meanwhile, an exhaustive dragging of the canal was underway near to where the bicycle was pulled up. The rear wheel and various other parts were still missing, and the murder weapon had still remained a mystery, and the hope was that all could soon be dredged up. In the press, the case was back in a big way. After falling to the back pages, and then entirely forgotten for so many months, the Saturday after the arrest of Ronald Light saw the entire front page of the Leicester Post dominated by the full story of the murder investigation thus far, including pictures of the original crime scene and of the green bicycle, proudly held for the cameras like a prize catch. Among the lines of inquiry in building the case against Light was a conversation that had apparently gone on between two young girls and a man on the evening of the murder. Muriel Nunney, aged 14, and Valeria Cavin, aged 12, gave a statement to the police that a man on a green bike had approached them whilst they were out riding. The man, they said, had tried to separate them, asking to ride with one of them alone. 
the girls rather wisely declined the request. In a lineup, both fingered Light immediately. Ronald Light was rather unhappy, however, as was becoming normal in a slew of lineups in which he found himself fingered every time. He complained that he was not allowed to shave beforehand and that the statements from witnesses all claimed specifically that the man that they had met with on July the 5th was unshaven. Further to this, he stated that the statements from the girls were not taken until after his arrest, when his photograph had already been printed in the local papers. This, he said, was intentional on the police's part in order to bias the lineups against him. The trial against Light was pushed back twice whilst police continued to dredge the canal, and Light was placed on remand on both occasions. When he appeared in court, he was said to be cool and calm, despite the long queues that filed up to the courtroom to view the proceedings. On his first visit to sit in front of the judge, the crowds were said to be so full that they had to be parted by police before Light's arrival at the court to allow him to enter. On the 12th of March, the rear wheel was found, along with the rear braking mechanism with matching serial number to the green frame, and a week later, a brown leather army revolver holster full of .455 cartridges was pulled up, though still the weapon itself remained ever elusive. On the 23rd of March, Light was once again brought before a judge to undergo magisterial proceedings. Once again it caused great interest in the public, and it was reported that a queue of over a thousand people came to view the affair, far more than the capacity of the court would permit. The case was laid out before the court, and in particular, new evidence came to public light. When the prosecution claimed that they had evidence which could show that although no firearms were found in Light's possession, he had owned a service revolver as late as 1915. It was also given as evidence by the Light family's servant and Mrs Webb that Ronald Light would regularly go out cycling up until the time of the murder, after which the bike was stored away in the kitchen of the house until December, though she has never seen it since. Light apparently told her that he had sold it. The case seemed to be building strongly against Light, at least until the question of motive was brought up. Whilst there are no transcripts existing, the press did a stellar job of reporting the scene. As to a motive, he could only tell them that in a case of murder, the prosecution was not required to either prove or suggest one. If it was necessary, then in the absence of proof, possibly some guilty person might escape. The girl was not outraged. She was killed and left lying on the roadside, and it was not a question of manslaughter, accidental death or suicide but murder and nothing but murder. The matter as to whether the prisoner was acquainted or not with the girl, or whether they were chance acquaintances, was not the question, but the considering of evidence. He maintained that the prisoner must have known that the police desired certain information, and added that the prisoner did not come forward. He was last seen in company with the girl half an hour before she was found dead, and he would suggest that there was ample and sufficient evidence to justify him being sent for trial. At the end of the proceedings that lasted for two full days, Ronald Light was to commit Ronald Light was committed to stand trial for the murder of Bella Wright. His only statement throughout was to say, I am innocent, and by the advice of my legal advisers, I reserve my defence. In the run-up to the trial, things fell relatively quiet on the case of Bella Wright. The only press report was a small paragraph on the retrieval of a bike chain from the canal. Meanwhile, Ronald Light was busy arranging his defence, 
and with the aid of his mother and a wealthy family friend, he secured the services of Sir Edward Marshall Hall to stand as his defence lawyer. Hall was no ordinary defence. Schooled at rugby in Cambridge, he was well known for his impassioned defences and after a string of successful high-profile cases, he became known as the Great Defender. Indeed, many considered him to be the greatest orator and legal figure of the day. The trial opened on Wednesday, June the 9th, and the curtain raised to a packed house. Ronald Light arrived at 10am by police van amidst what was described as a thronging of people who had arrived since the early hours in the morning hoping to get a seat at the proceedings. Light himself was described as one of the least perturbed men in the crowded court. Dressed in a dark blue suit, he stood confidently before the judge to plead not guilty. The prosecution was carried out primarily by Attorney General Sir Gordon Hewitt, whose opening statement once again mentioned the question of motive, alluding to the idea that the attack could have been one of revenge, whereby Light had made an advance towards Bella only to be rebuffed. He also commented on the quality of evidence and stated that although much may be circumstantial in nature, if all pointed in the same direction, it was not necessarily open to criticism on quality. In summary, he stated to the jury, If, when you have heard the evidence, you have any reasonable doubt, but reasonable doubt, as to whether this was the man whose hand fired the shot, why of course you will not hesitate to act upon it. If, as reasonable men discharging your duty to your country and fulfilling the oath you have taken, you are satisfied that this was the man, equally in that case you will not flinch, but will do that which you have undertaken. Bring a true verdict in accordance with the evidence. The remainder of the day was given to witness examination after briefly pointing out the key locations to the case. It did not take long for the great defender to strike. During cross-examination of the young girls Muriel Nunny and Valeria Cavin, Muriel was asked if she saw the man from the roadside meeting in court. Muriel replied in the positive and pointed to Ronald Light. Hall then addressed her. Hall, did you hear about what was called the Green Bicycle Case? Witness, yes sir. And I think you saw the photographs? Yes sir. You knew about this poor girl being found dead in the road? Yes, sir. You read it in the papers, I suppose? Yes, sir. You were asked whether you had seen this particular man on the 5th of July? Yes. The police gave you the date? Yes, sir. With minimal effort on his part, the defence had shown that the girl's statements were not only taken after the arrest of Ronald Light, but after the case and the arrest had been made public in the press and after the girls had read about it. Further, he suggested that the police had led the girls by supplying the date given in their statements. The girls' evidence was thrown out entirely by the judge. When Bella's relatives were called to the stand, Hall was equally as swift. All along, Light had told police that he was not acquainted with Bella, but the prosecution were pushing for an angle that proved he at the very least knew her name. Hall cross-examined George Measures, Bella's uncle, and asked him, did you ask your niece if she knew the man? And did she say, I do not know the man, he's a perfect stranger to me? The only answer Measures could give was a simple, yes sir. Once again, Hall's cutting down of the prosecution was swift and efficient. This continued when Dr. Williams, who, 
at the inquest had already commented that he was not an expert in firearms, was asked by Hall if that was the case. Naturally, the doctor had to concede that no, he was no ballistics expert. The second day of the trial was as hectic and crowded as the first. It would be the day that the jury would finally hear from Ronald Light himself on his movements on the day of the murder, and subsequently, the public too were now finally to hear what Light had to say in his defence. Whilst there is again no court transcript that survives, the press report of the statement sums up Light's speech, who at first explained that he had not owned a revolver since returning from France. He had taken a service revolver with him to France, but upon entering the hospital on his return to England to be treated for deafness, the revolver had been taken and left behind in the clearing station. Have you seen that revolver since? asked Hall. No sir, never, replied Light. The press report goes on. Ronald Vivian Light went into the witness box and described his movements on the fateful 5th of July. His composed demeanour did not desert him under his ordeal, and he handled the plan of the scene of the tragedy with great deliberation. He quite frankly admitted that he was in the company of Bella Wright on the afternoon of the day in question, and that he threw the green bicycle and the revolver holster into the canal, but he maintained that he knew nothing of the shooting of the girl. Light also admitted to owning ammunition for a service revolver, and that the ammunition fished out of the canal had belonged to him, as far as he knew. Light maintained that he had not met either of the young girls, Muriel Nunny or Valeria Cavan, and that he had first met Bella whilst out riding that evening. He found her not riding her bike, but leaning over it by the roadside. As I got up to the young lady, she was stooping over her bicycle, and she looked up at my approach and asked me if I could lend her a spanner. I had no spanners with me, and I just looked at her bicycle. As far as I could see from what she pointed out to me, there was a certain amount of play in the freewheel. I could not do anything to it as I had no spanner. After that we rode on together. We rode down a steep hill together and up another, and when we came to the bottom of the one to go up, we dismounted and walked up the hill together. At the top we got on our machines and we rode on together. We came to a village. I asked her the name of the village, and she said it was Gulby. As we got there, she told me that she was going to see some friends there. She said, I shall only be ten minutes or a quarter of an hour. So we rode on into the village together and I went with her as far as the house where she was going. When she said she was going to see some friends and should only be ten minutes or a quarter of an hour, I took that as a sort of suggestion that I should wait and we should ride together. After waiting for the fifteen minutes, Light then said he went to leave the village, assuming Bella was not coming back. However, as he approached the church, he noticed his rear tyre was flat and had a puncture. Mending the puncture took him around an hour or so, and after the repairs, he coasted back down on his bike to see where Bella had got to, only to meet her as she was leaving her uncle's. Upon his approach to the house, he said, Hello, you've been a long time. This went against the statements from Bella's uncle and cousin, who said that the man had approached and said, Bella, you've been a long time. But Light insisted to Hall that he had never knew her name until he read the reports of her murder in the paper. He then continues with his story as the pair left Bella's uncle's house. When we got to the top of the hill, near the church, we got on our bicycles. I found my tyre had gone down again, so I had to pump it up. 
during which Bella rode ahead, very slowly. He pumped his tyre up and caught up with her only a hundred yards down the road. I told her that while she had been in her uncle's house, I had been repairing my tyre, and I said it had gotten a very porous and bad state through having been laid by so long. She then told me the only thing I knew about her, and that was this. She said she never let her tyres get in such a state, as she was employed at a tyre factory and could get them at cost price. It was the first thing I knew about her, but not the only thing. I learnt more the last moment I ever saw her. As we came to the junction of the upper and lower roads, I turned along the upper road. She got off her bicycle, I also got off my bicycle. She said, I must say goodbye to you here, I am going that way, and she pointed to the road on the left of the gate. I said, but isn't this the shortest way to Leicester, meaning the road that I was on? She said, I don't live there. I said, well I must go this way because I am late already and with this puncture I may have to walk part of the way home. After this, Light said he never saw Bella again and that it took him some time to reach home as he kept having to stop to inflate his damaged tyre. At least this part of Light's story had already been confirmed in a previous statement to the court by his mother's servant, who told the jury that Light had gotten home late and when she had asked him what happened, he had told her that this bicycle had broken down again. As for his reasoning to discard his bicycle, holster and ammunition, Light told the court, Well, for the first day I ever saw the accounts, every paper was saying the man who had ridden the green bicycle had murdered this girl. In retrospect, he could of course see that these actions were not sensible and that he could have helped police to switch their line of inquiry to other suspects if he had simply come forward. However, he went on. I did not make up my mind deliberately not to go forward. I was astounded and frightened at this unexpected thing. I kept on hesitating and in the end, I drifted into doing nothing at all. One of his chief reasons for staying silent, he said, was that he did not want to worry his mother who was suffering from a poor heart, and that anyhow, aside from explaining to the police that he was not guilty and not a suspect, he thought he could not help police in any way to ascertain who the real murderer was. He tossed away his belongings into the canal to avoid suspicion and to ensure that they could not be traced to him. The third and last day of the trial saw the prosecution make its final statement to the jury. In summary, they pointed to Light as having acted like a guilty man who was working on deception, that he had lied to police at first about having ever owned the green bicycle and that if all his actions were taken for the wrong motive then it was strong evidence that he was a guilty man. Sir Edward Hall's response for the defence was to firstly solemnly point out that however they swung it it was regrettable that the jury should soon have to make a decision that held the life of a man in its outcome. He then went on to summarise Light's situation as such. In other words, that the dead girl had lied about it. What foundation was there for such a belief? The only little evidence to support the belief that the man knew her was a casual conversation overheard. One witness had said Light exclaimed, Bella, you have been a long time and another witness said it was, you have been a long time, Bella. Upon that flimsy statement, the jury were asked to find that the two people were known to one another. Why? Because the prosecution realised, the Attorney General might say what he liked about the innumerable coincidences of truth, 
that the overwhelming difficulty in the case was the entire absence of motive as between the prisoner and the woman. The description of the man and his bicycle was accurate to the smallest detail. In a short jacket, a revolver could not be very well concealed. If it is said it might have been in the pocket of his raincoat, surely people who observed with such nicety would have seen that there was weight in the raincoat. It was a curious and significant fact that none of the witnesses said one single word about the revolver. Could he not have said that the thing was an accident? That they were playing with the revolver when it went off in error? There is not a man, woman or child who would not have accepted that story. There was the man's perfect defence if he wanted to invent a defence. If the prisoner wanted a story to invent, that was the story that was practically examination proof. It was not the prisoner's story. His story probably showed moral cowardice of the worst possible order, but it must be remembered that shell shock destroyed nerve vitality. If the prisoner had told lies in certain parts of his story, which could be tested, no doubt rebutting evidence would have been called. It was quite understandable that the man, not wanting to alarm his mother, should drift into a policy of concealment. It was a vital factor of the case that the prisoner kept his bicycle down in the kitchen for ten days, as shown by the evidence of witnesses for the Crown. Was that consistent with the prisoner having deliberately and premeditatively murdered this girl? The prisoner was driven from a negative to a positive policy of active concealment, and he maintained this attitude to police until the time when he was identified by Cox. From that point, there was no doubt of his identity. I have to remind you, gentlemen, that this is a matter of life and death. Unless the evidence leaves you with no doubt, you will remember that in the one scale held by the finger of justice is what is called the presumption of innocence, which is the British judicial system's most valued feature. You will not hesitate to make use of that if there is any reasonable doubt in your mind. Paul's speech lasted for a full two hours, and in it, alongside the testimony of Light, the jury were faced with a troubling predicament. Light's testimony may have sounded cowardly to some, but it also sounded plausible, and in fairness to some, entirely understandable. The jury stepped out to make their decision, and after three hours they returned. Ronald Light was found not guilty. Ronald Light had escaped a guilty verdict, and as such, the case of Bella Wright fell to a new mystery. If not Light, then who was the murderer? There are three main theories which have persisted over the past 100 years, the first two of which are fairly straightforward. Either you accept the position of the prosecution, that Light had in some way made an advance upon Bella and shot her in revenge of a rebuttal, or that perhaps he was just a cold psychopath shooting her with no motive at all. The second, that you accept the position of the defence, that Light was innocent and merely concealed his tracks through fear of being prematurely painted as the criminal. The third theory is a little different, however. In the vacuum of the trial's aftermath, the public responded quickly, and after only two days, the Leicester Post printed a story coming from the Daily Mail concerning the dead crow that was found in the field by the murder scene. What if, it was suggested, the girl was not murdered at all? Two correspondents write advancing fresh possible solutions of the mystery. The first comes from a barrister who says he does not believe the girl was murdered at all, 
He suggests that the key to the mystery is the dead raven found gorged with blood in a field near to the body and which had left traces of blood on the top of the gate adjoining the road. I doubt very much whether this creature was in reality gorged with human blood, says the barrister. On the contrary, it seems to me not improbable that it was shot by a boy or some other irresponsible person and that the bullet went on and killed Mrs. Wright. I should like to know whether it is a scientific fact that a raven may so gorge itself with human blood as to die. The other correspondent, a naturalist, asked by whom the raven was examined and also expressed his doubt whether it would gorge itself until it died. It's far more likely, he said, that the bird was shot and bled internally. This theory was not overlooked and in 1922, writer Truman Humphreys published a shooting crow's theory in an article he wrote for The Strand magazine in a peculiar fact-based fictional mashup of events. In the article, Humphreys accepts Light's version of events, that he didn't come forward due to shell shock and not wanting to concern his mother due to her poor health, but he expands on the entire concept of the dead crow. Here he veers into fiction, suggesting that a young boy hunting rabbits could have been lying on the floor with a rifle perched on the edge of a cattle trough. Indeed, there was such a trough on the field adjacent to the scene. The shot, he said, was fired towards the crow, hitting both the crow and Bella at once. The reality is, however, that the bird was examined, and if it had been shot with a .455 calibre bullet, it likely would have been blown to pieces. This does not necessarily make the story any less true. What if the bird was shot at, but either missed or only clipped by the bullet, shooting Bella instead? The bird could have still gorged on the blood of the victim before dying, just as the original evidence heard. Would it have gorged itself on blood in the first place? There is considerable ornithological evidence against the idea. Or what if the bird had been shot by a much smaller bullet than a .55 bullet found in the road? Could it have been that the .455 bullet was a red herring all along? They were commonplace at the time, and though it would have been a remarkable coincidence that a spent bullet could have been found in the road by a shooting victim and be entirely unrelated, there is evidence to suggest it was just that. The medical evidence shows a wound that would have been relatively small for a bullet the size of a .455. Hall himself mentioned in the trial that the effect of such a bullet on the skull of a human being is almost to blow the side of the head off. And in a letter dated after the trial, he said himself that he believed the bullet to be nothing but a coincidence. There is one last twist to the tale, and that is of a letter discovered only recently. For a long time, there existed rumours that there was some sort of signed confession by light that had been floating around the Leicester police station. However, it was often thought to be something of an urban legend, as no one could ever produce a letter upon inquiry. In more recent years, however, author Anthony Brown managed to unearth and attempt to authenticate a document which he believes was the seed for the legend of the signed statement. The document in question was found by Bill Donoghue in 2007, when he found it amongst a stack of old documents in a Leicester police station. He wrote about it in an article for Bicycling Magazine on the case. This document had been stored in Leicestershire County Records Office for the past 8-10 years. Before that, it had apparently remained a secret. Known as the Bowley Statement, it is a typewritten statement made by Superintendent Levi Bowley, 
the Towers of Hell when in custody, Light had gotten along well with Bowley on account of his fair treatment towards him and of how, three days after his acquittal, Light came to collect his possessions from the police station. Upon doing so, Bowley reached out to Light. I told him that I did not believe he had willfully shot her and that I never had believed that of him. Well, you are a good sport. If I tell you something, can I depend upon you keeping it to yourself? As such a juicy piece of bait, Bowley could of course not help but reply in the affirmative. Light then went on to tell Bowley of an alternative story to the facts around the murder of Bella Wright. I did shoot the girl, but it was completely accidental. We were riding quietly along. I was telling her about the war and my experiences in France. I had my revolver in my raincoat pocket, and we dismounted for her to look at it. I had fired off some shots in the afternoon for practice, and I had no idea there was a loaded cartridge in it. We were both standing by the sides of our bicycles. I think she had dismounted on the right of her machine, and that the two bicycles were between us. I took the revolver from my coat pocket and was in the act of handing it to her. I'm not sure whether she actually took hold of it or not, but her hand was out to take it when it went off. She fell and never stirred. I was horror struck. I did not know what to do. I knew she was dead. I did not touch her. I did not know the girl. I had never met her before that evening. What I said about her asking me for a spanner was quite true. I first saw her at the top of the hill. I screwed her bicycle up and we went down the hill and then started to go up the next hill where Atkins saw us. I did not make any improper suggestion to her either on the way to Gulby or after leaving there. I did not mention this at all. That might and probably would have happened later. If I had intended shooting her, I should never have done it close up to the village. It was much more lonely along the road we had passed. I do not remember the two little girls. They must have mistaken me for someone else. I said, where is the revolver? He replied, it is in the canal, but not there. I threw that and another in near Belgrave Gate. I said, does your mother know? And he said, my God, no. I would not let my mother know it for the world. No one on this earth knows, but us two. And if you tell, I shall say I never said anything of the kind. The document is then signed, but only by Superintendent Bowley, and it only raises as many questions as supposedly answers. In an attempt to authenticate it, Anthony Brown took it to Rob Radley, the Director of Forensic Documents Lab, who found a watermark in the paper from Leeds Council, though this was explained by Brown that after the First World War it became customary for police to write on any paper that they had lying around. The paper itself was dated to have been manufactured before 1950 and the signature was said to match Bowley's real signature within an acceptable margin for error. It's difficult from this to ascertain if the document was authentic or not. Instead we can look at another document, a communication between Chief Constable Holmes and the Director of Public Prosecution from nine days later pertaining to an attempt the police were considering to send Light to trial on charge of perjury. It reads, R.E. Light, referring to your call yesterday and to the document you left with me, I beg to say that we have been in consultation with the Attorney General as to what use, if any, should be made of the information contained in the document, and that it is decided that a prosecution for perjury should be instituted if the necessary evidence is forthcoming. 
It becomes very easy to believe that the document was the statement apparently made by Light to Bowley, in which case the authenticity of its origin is at least answered. As for the authenticity of the statement itself, that is altogether another matter. Why would Light suddenly open up to Bowley, or did he open up at all? Was it a complete work of fiction, or an effort for the police to have a second chance at getting the man they believed to be guilty? For starters, why was the gun never fished out of the canal after Light had told Bowley where he had disposed of it? This, just like the murder of Bella Wright as a whole, are mysteries which continue to roll onwards for over a hundred years. Was Light guilty or innocent of either murder or manslaughter, or perhaps neither? Known as the Green Bicycle Mystery in 1919, the facts are no clearer today than they ever were, and the mystery of how Bella Wright died steadily continues onwards. There we have it, ladies and gentlemen, the murder of Bella Wright, the Green Bicycle Mystery. It was quite a long one. It was much longer than I anticipated, actually. But, you know, it's season three, episode one, so apologies for taking so much of your time, but... Why not, eh? It's the first in the season. And we'll be back to sort of go over a few of the bigger questions left after these short adverts. Today's episode is sponsored by Studio Headphones. For anyone paying attention, we've been sponsored by Studio before, and at that time I talked about the over-the-ear model called the Regents. I quite liked them, and I wrote a long review on my blog because I wanted to be transparent about the things that were advertising on the show but the long and the short of it were that they were really not bad headphones at all and I actually still use them almost daily. For this sponsorship I got to test the in-ear model called the Tray. These ones are kind of amusingly aimed at people with an active lifestyle which is yeah far from me but basically they're sweat proof and they're made out of like really soft kind of silicon rubber They have wingtips that fit inside of your earlobes so that you can keep them secure whilst doing all the things that you fit people do. They're Bluetooth, so you're completely wireless, have over nine hours of battery life and have built-in controls for music and a microphone to take calls and control Siri and all your voice apps. Okay, so that's kind of hit all the bullet points from the company spiel. It's time for a bit of, you know, real talk. But I actually found that I really liked them. Um, and I don't mean to sound surprised by that. It's just that it's been a little while since I've tried any buds at all. Um, I've been using a lot of over-ear headphones. You know, I was quite shocked uh, by how good the sound quality was. I wasn't really expecting much. And not only that, but I think they're actually more of an all-rounder than the Regents models. Uh, where the Regents, they kind of lacked a little in bass, but they excelled really well at sort of listening to podcasts and jazz. I think the Trey are really good sort of all-round headphones. I think they have some really good heft in the low end and they sound really good across the entire audio spectrum. Uh, the Bluetooth range is not quite as good as the Regents, but that said, I can still walk about probably around 20 to 30 feet away from my phone, so it's probably more than you'll need you know, it's probably more than most users are ever going to need. And, you know, they look good, which ties in with their whole kind of Scandinavian vibe that they have going on. They come with a genuine leather carry pouch. And, yeah, they seem like a good price for a decent set of in-earbuds to me. So, you know what makes them an even better deal, right? 
is if you do decide to splash out on some new Bluetooth headphones, you head over to studio.com and at the checkout use the code DARKHISTORIES15 and that's all one word, DARKHISTORIES15 and that will net you a cool 15% off and free worldwide shipping. So that's studio.com, enter code DARKHISTORIES15 at checkout. Cheers. Ads are a pain in the butt, right? So do you want to know a good way to avoid listening to them? If you sign up to Dark History's Patreon, you get ad-free versions of the show with early access to episodes, access to bonus content, stickers, exclusive discounts on the t-shirt store, and all that other good stuff. You get content from me, you get videos, I give like a little running commentary and behind the scenes of how I make the show. And by being a member, you're directly supporting the show. You can sign up for as little as $1 per month, and you can help make Dark Histories the best it can be. For more information, check out our website at darkhistories.com or pop over to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash darkhistories. Right, enough of all that. Thanks for listening and let's get back to the episode. Welcome back. Bella Wright, or I suppose more of a mystery, Ronald Light. Did he kill her? Did he not kill her? And what about that Bowley statement? I think... Although it's sort of working backwards, the Bowley statement is something that I kind of really want to talk about because, for starters, I don't believe that to be true at all. And I'm really fascinated to see what other people think of it, actually. I thought it was a total work of fiction on behalf of Bowley. If it turns out that Bowley actually wrote it, I think he probably did. I go along with, you know, I mean, they, they, for starters, they authenticated his signature. They said that it, it did contain some discrepancies, but they also pointed out that every signature has like a degree of variation. So, I mean, I know, I know from my own personal signature, depending on the time of day, how awake or how sleepy I am or what pen I'm using or sometimes the postman comes around and he gets you to do it with your finger on that little machine. Like my signature changes from day to day. So, you know, it, I can go along with that. And and apparently anyway, when they authenticated it, it was within the margin of error. So, you know, that is quite strong. And I, and I, but I think aside from the scientific dating, the whole, you know, the dating of the paper to be before 1950 and, they they tested the typewriter used and they said that it could have been a typewriter from the right time and all the rest of it. But aside from all of that, I, I found actually that the communication um, between the um, prosecutors at the end was actually more damning or, or, or at least it authenticated it better because it's quite clear, I think, that that's the doc, like the document that they mentioned. That well, they call it is the document, but I would say it's quite clear that that's the one they're talking about. I mean, what other document was there? It, it seems to, to altogether it fits too well. So I, I think that that communication in itself more or less authenticates the Bowley statement. Whether or not it's true, though, is a is a different question altogether. And and I find it very hard to believe firstly that that light would have just opened up to Bowley and told him everything what why would he have done that what what benefit would he have had was it perhaps that he was a guilty man and he just wanted to get it off his chest maybe 
or you know he felt a, a measure of guilt that he'd kind of accidentally shot this girl maybe but it seems unlikely and there's a lot of discrepancies in it as well when you sort of read it for starters uh, he says that in the Bowley statement he says that when he met Bella he tightened her will whereas at court he said that he didn't have any spanners and he couldn't tighten her will so that changed but I think the most damning part of it is he told them exactly where he disposed of the revolvers and he said he disposed of two firearms and he told them exactly where they were well why were they never found why did they not spend effort to go and find them I think that I think that would be like almost like one of the first things they would have done and I know the author of the book that I read, Anthony Brown, that that's he's actually attempting to do that now, I believe, um, or possibly already attempted it. And obviously nothing was found. So I find that quite hard to believe. If that's a true statement, I find it quite hard to believe. So then you sort of question, okay, so why was that statement written? And my first thoughts, like straight away, what popped into my mind was well, the police wanted a conviction and the police I, I i guess it's believed that it to be you know that they got the right man so i think they perhaps just concocted the story as a way to get him on perjury instead now that's kind of suggesting that's a big statement because that's suggesting in all sorts of police corruption going on and and, and things like that but i can see that as being plausible and I don't think it's too outside the realms of possibility. The fact that they never actually went ahead and tried him for perjury, I think, backs that up to a degree. You know, that perhaps they were considering it, but they realised that it just wasn't going to fly because he'd never signed the statement. It was going to be their word against his. And, and you know, like, like, like the risk of them getting caught and found out for corruption was just greater than, you know, the reward of getting or having a chance that like could be part of a trial for perjury, which I think, like I say, would have been unsuccessful in the end because it would have been one man's against, you know, one man's word against another. And I think all of this, that the, the motive for the police to do it would have probably weighed into that decision by the jury. And I think he probably would have got away with the perjury trial as well, which, so I guess they, they didn't do it. So, that was my immediate thoughts, but I'd be really interested to know what others think. Because interestingly, I also, and I don't know if this is just me being, being naive, but I also believed his statement in court, and I actually think he's innocent. I don't think he did it. I can totally believe his story. Or I'm not sure if I believe his story. I'm a bit, Maybe I'm a bit of a fence-sitter on this, but... I totally believe that it's believable, if you like, or, or I, I can totally see that it's plausible that you could, you meet this girl, you hang out with her for a bit, you leave, that girl ends up being murdered, you're the one that was last seen with her, and all the papers printing this stuff saying, we're looking for this guy, and, you know, pinning it, the murder on him right from day one. I can see, you know, if that was me, I, I'm not sure... We all like to think that we do the right thing in the right times, right? But we don't always do it. And I wonder if that's the case, you know. He said in court, you know, in retrospect, he realised what he did was foolish. But at the time, he just wasn't thinking about it like that. He All he was simply thinking was, 
basically, oh, geez, this is really going to put me in trouble. So I've got to conceal it. And so, of course, that made him look like a guilty man. But I can also understand where he's coming from there. Say, it's very easy to say you wouldn't do that. But but it's, but it's very hard to know what you actually would do in that position. And I say, I think often we do things that later we look back and go, oh, well, that was obviously stupid. You know, in retrospect, we realised that our actions might not have been what the, the, the correct actions to serve us or anyone else for the best. So oh, I totally feel like that was a plausible defence. But maybe I just got sucked in by the great defender. I don't know. Maybe I'm just being really naive. I certainly can understand how he got away with it if he did do it. I can certainly see how, you know, he was given a verdict of not guilty. Because if I was on that jury, I wouldn't like to have given a guilty verdict, I don't think. Because there was just too much doubt. And obviously, of course, with murder... The light was at least looking at, you know, life imprisonment. I'm I'm not sure, you know, and that would have been at the very least. So, you know, it's a heavy weight on your shoulders. And, and I think it, I was honestly surprised that they were out for three hours, to be honest. Um, I, I think there was way too much reasonable doubt. Um, so, yeah, that, that was kind of my con- conclusion. I'd be interested to hear others, especially as the, the, the author of the book that I read on it, um, he had a website and it had like a poll on the website and you could go to his website and sort of vote on who you think, it, you know, what theory you think was correct if you think it was Ronald Light uh, was guilty or not guilty. And overwhelmingly the votes were for guilty and that, that quite surprised me because I didn't think he was. I, I think he did lack a motive. I don't think he... Although, see, this is where I'm, I'm a little bit of a fence here because he does clearly have a a history of uh, sort of assaulting women. I mean, that's a bit strong maybe in some cases, but at the very least you can say he was a bit of a pest. And that would be probably non-PC and very generous. You know, he was clearly sort of sexually harassing an awful lot of people in his life. Like three or four occasions he was kind of, done for sexual harassment basically or, or you know what would have been sexual harassment today um so you know he had this kind of history but interestingly and i think hall pointed it out during the trial he's he said that that class of man that would have assaulted bella he would have done that and then shot her you know and she showed no signs of any sort of assault or anything so what did he shoot her for? You know, that that kind of doubt over the motive, I think, is is really strong. Like, what motive did he have to kill her? It doesn't seem like much. Anthony Brown, I say the guy, who, the author of the book that I read, he sort of goes on this big fictional rant about how perhaps he was just a psychopath. I, I can't buy that. It's, you know, like, like, it makes a lot of assumptions that we just don't know. And... Even if you are just a psychopath, do you really just go riding with someone and then shoot him in the face and then just leave? Like, I think he would have shown more tendency towards that sort of behaviour than he had done in his life if if that's what happened. The fact that he only did it the once as well seems like that sort of murder where you're just kind of cold-blooded, 
you meet someone, you hang out with them for a while, and then you shoot them in the face and leave. I, I think that wouldn't be contained to just the one murder. I think when you're sort of that far gone, and that's the sort of actions that you take, you possibly kill more than the one person, right? I mean, I don't know. That's I'm, I'm, that's just my initial thoughts on it. Maybe, maybe I'm just being really naive and, and sort of falling safe for Hall's defence. But, but I, I, I found honestly, I found the the defence to be much more plausible than the prosecution in the end. So I'm a bit of a fence here on whether I believe he was guilty or not. But that 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 would be a really good way to sum it up. Yeah, I found the defence to be more plausible than the prosecution. I guess I'll say that. As for the crow, I thought it was quite implausible that, you know, someone could shoot a bullet at just the right time to catch the crow, perhaps not kill it, but shoot Bella instead. And you think, oh, you know, what are the chances of that happening? But then I suppose the same time, people win the lottery every week and what are the chances of that happening? Just because something seems like a huge coincidence which i mean again i think this is something the whole point out just something seems like a coincidence doesn't make it not true yeah again like yeah perhaps that could have happened then i think it's an interesting theory but i'm not sure i really believe it but one part of that theory that i do believe is that the crow would not have just jumped down off the gate and just gone nuts on a human and eaten all its blood so much so that it ended up gorging itself to death what I mean, I've read some sort of modern analysis, not particularly of that, but of birds like crows and ravens eating basically like human remains. And and it, and the evidence that I read was that basically a, a crow would not have sufficient suction to actually take on, take in that amount of blood um, in such a short period of time. So... That kind of shoots that one out of the water, I, I thought. But but quite aside from that, it seems quite unrealistic anyway. I mean, I think one of the statements at the time was, you know, was was this crow like some kind of vampire species that we, we, we've never seen before? And I thought that was quite funny, but also quite poignant. Like, yeah, I mean, would this really have happened? I'm not so sure. So then you're looking at why did the crow die? And I can kind of see... That if you're going to go with the crow theory, that it was perhaps shot with a smaller bullet and that the 455 in the road was just another coincidence. Again, seems like a huge coincidence, but those 455 rounds were super common and it was all trodden into the mud and it was in a hoof print. And, you know, it seems weird that the bullet was would have been landed in the, in the ground so close to where the body was if it was shot upwards at an angle wouldn't it have gone into a tree or a bush or something like that rather than into the ground I, mean, I don't know enough about ballistics maybe as it kind of exited it, it, it might have been sent off course I, I don't know I, I know that stuff can happen but I wonder if it would have sent it straight into the ground I'm not sure so I can see that it might have been shot like the crow might have been shot by a smaller caliber like a like a, a .22 rifle which would have been quite common again at that time and that's what shot Bella because 
basically the, the the kind of main part i'm not sure how clear i made this because the 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 evidence gets a bit murky but the main kind of draw for this is that the hole in her face was a lot was made about the size of the hole in her face and the way it was described was far from scientific it was basically the doctor inserted a pencil into it and said in his report said i could fit a pencil into the hole and it but he kind of makes it out as if the, the pencil only just fitted into the hole and the whole sort of this this kind of, this is where it gets kind of murky because the way he reports it is so far from scientific he says that the exit wound is what was was one and a half to two inches i believe um so that was a bit more scientific but so the in, the entry wound he said was about the size of a pencil and and say that, that a lot of people suggested that a 0.455 would have made a much deeper hole. And like uh, like uh, Hall said in his defence, that if it was a 455 revolver shot at five feet, it would have blown the side of her head off. I, again, I, I'm not entirely sure, but I did read some other evidence that about, um, well, some information about those 455 revolvers that, that they were talking about the service revolvers and they said that they were like hugely potent you know they were made to basically like stop a man dead in his tracks at that distance four feet you know it, it, we're talking like blowing holes in people uh, they were basically you know if it, a 0.455 from a rifle would apparently be like an elephant rifle which i don't mean i'm not entirely so being british i'm not massively up on guns but i mean elephant rifle says to me big gun right so is that hole was that hole too small for a 0.455 if the answer is yes then the 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 bullet found in the ground was possibly not the bullet that shot her seems like a huge coincidence but like all said like you know just because something's a coincidence doesn't make it not true so there's so many questions and I think possibly this episode's going on really long and I say I don't want to take so much of your time I try and keep these episodes down to an hour but those were kind of my initial kind of questions and I'm just going to chuck them out there next week we'll be doing I'll be getting back to the live streams and we're going to be talking about this I haven't decided if it's a Friday or Saturday yet um I need to work out the schedule for the new season but it will be next week. If you follow me on social media at Dark Histories Everywhere, basically, um, I will post about the live stream. Um, so you should jump on and you can take part in the live stream. If you come on our Discord, you can actually talk to us and actually take part. You know, we can all have a big discussion about it. If you'd rather not jump on and sort of, because it's video and voice chat, basically, if you'd rather not do that in front of the whole of YouTube, um, then you can use the chat as well, like the live chat. I try and keep an eye on that. So yeah, we, you know, we're going to be talking about this. So definitely, like, follow the social media, and you'll you'll find. Um, I'll, I'll give out the schedule. Say it'll be next Friday or Saturday. But once I've worked that out, I'll put that up on social media. So come along and chat about you know theories of Bella Wright because I thought it was a really fascinating case. So yeah. You can find us on social media everywhere at Dark Histories, pretty much. Um, if you just go to darkhistories.com, we've got a fancy new website. Check that out. Um, everything, you'll find everything you need there. Like every, You can contact me through email. You can find all our social media. And you'll be able to find links to how to support the show through Patreon and uh, 
to for coffee and things like that. If you want to do that, then obviously it's always, you know, um, greatly accepted and, you know, thankfully accepted, I should say, because a show like this always needs money to be going somewhere. It's got to that point now where there's no shortage of things that I can spend money on, like new subs for newspaper archives and all the rest of it, which is something new that I've subscribed to recently, but that's just another outgoing for the show. So, yeah, enough about that. Thanks very much for listening. I've taken way too much of your time, but it's good to be back. And I shall see any of you that want to come to the live stream at the live stream next week. For those that don't come to the live stream, I will see you in two weeks' time. Thanks very much for listening. It's been a pleasure as always. Sleep tight.